I was just going through this month's previews catalog, and in there they have an official Golden Girls cheesecake scented candle that like comic stores are gonna buy. I don't know why it's in previews. <laughs> Welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we web-sling across the multiverse, one issue at a time. My name is Jessica Frazier, and I'm joined by my co-host, the avenging arachnid, Mike Thompson. I like the name, but what do I have to avenge at this point? Anything you want, buddy. Anything you want. There's a lot going on in the world. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) Just pick something. Pick anything. Just throw a dart. It's fine. The purpose of this podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We want to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they're woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. We also have the extreme, that is with a capital X, <laughs> pleasure of welcoming back onto the show best friends of the pod, <laughs> Rob and Guido of Dear Watchers Podcast. Welcome so much. Hi. Hello. I, I want to point out that you wrote extreme with a trademark at the end, too. That's very important. <laughs> I sure did. Yeah. I'm so glad you called <laughs> it out. <laughs> I'll throw it on a t-shirt, everyone. Why not? <laughs> we need an extreme episode of Tencent Takes, though. Looking forward to that in your future. Makes me sad to think that you don't think that every episode is extreme. (laughs) True. You can record it while you're bungee jumping, maybe something like that. (laughs) Go kart driving, something like that. With a GoPro camera, that's how you record the episode. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm a hundred percent game. You're talking to the wild host here. I don't know if Mike is so on board, but I am like, let's do this thing. I could spike my mohawk for. Oh, there you <laughs> go. That's extreme. That's extreme for me. Sure. Well, would one of you or both of you uh, care to give the listeners a bit of background on your incredible show? Sure. We are Dear Watchers, a comic book omniverse podcast. And so we do a deep dive into the multiverse each episode. We look at the storylines that come before and after the alternate universe we're visiting that week. And we've been also talking to a lot of really cool creators recently about multiversal storytelling. Yes. We recently did some Elvira in comics and much to our happiness, the Elvira herself retweeted us. So that was definitely (laughs) a life goal accomplished. Oh, I was so jealous. It gets us wow. one step closer to life goal. Life goal yes. is obviously <laughs> she's yes. on. Yes, we've met right. her, but we've paid for her autograph. So that doesn't really count <laughs> exactly. as meeting when you're paying someone money. <laughs> yeah. She is actually one of our dream guests, to be honest. We have reached out and tried to get a hold of her before. Unfortunately, well, we picked it- very poor timing on that, though. <laughs> We can have a joint episode and she can join the four of us. Yes, exactly. Don't tempt me. Actually, (laughs) that would be quite extreme. Yeah. Like, I would cry. (laughs) (laughs) Hard same. So yeah, listeners, we have done another crossover episode with our lovely dear watchers. So uh, Mike, what episode is that? Do you know? 
it was episode 24, which focused on Marvel's Alterniverse line, which was its weird alternate Earth imprint that lasted for a year. But it encompassed everything from their take on DC's Elseworlds as well as What If stories. And you lovely people have been on our podcast discussing what if Rogue had the power of Thor. And right around the same time this episode is out, probably coincidentally, like the same week, perhaps we're going to be talking about Robin 3000 together. So lots of crossovers. Oh, I'm so excited about that. I'm so excited about that issue. I've been talking to Jessica about that quite a bit. I don't even know what that is. So (laughs) (laughs) I hope hopefully I will by the time we're recording our podcast. (laughs) Fingers crossed. If you're enjoying our show so far, listeners, and you want to help us grow, it would be a huge help if you'd rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and Good Pods, because that really helps with discoverability. Friendly reminder, we've pulled our content off of Spotify, given how the platform is continuing to actively promote voices spreading vaccine disinformation, which we dislike. Today, we are going to be swinging into the Spider-Verse, where we will be discussing all, yes, you heard that correctly, all of the films in the Spider-Man cinematic universe, from Toby to Tom, and everything in between, including Into the Spider-Verse, the Miles Morales animated film. But before we get into our main topic, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? And why don't we start out with Rob? Okay, so... I'm not as big of a comic reader as Guido. For anyone who's listened to our podcast, they know that. But I have recently been reading, and I'm not all the way through volume one yet, but I've been recently reading My Bad, which is a new superhero comedy series from Ahoy Comics, who I love a lot of their stuff. I love their Edgar Allan Poe snifter of of terror series yes so good and i love that ahoy also brings in prose writing they do fake letters it's great and this is a really great funny esoteric superhero series and i would say if anyone was a fan of the show freakazoid which i know our other twitter friend make mine amalgam is a super fan of but if you were a fan of that show freakazoid this is definitely very similar in tone or to the animaniacs or anything like that so if you want a really fun irreverent superhero story i definitely would check this out written by the extraordinary mark russell yes i love everything he does everything he does is a really clever satire he did that flintstone series and oh yeah that's amazing i was sitting there i was like why does that name sound familiar yeah the flintstones comic from dc that was like about six years ago but it was really good this has a similar tone of of some really great takedowns on who is a superhero and capitalism mixed in with the zaniness so yeah really fun so far that sounds rad guido what about you So we just finished watching a TV show that is so comic booky. I wish it had a comic book spinoff. And it's the second series of Russian Doll on Netflix. Mm. Have either of you watched either series of Russian Doll, one or two? I have not, but it's on my list and I keep staring at it. And then I keep having to do podcast watching, which it's always things I want to watch anyway. So it's hard, hard choices, tough. But so it is on the list. I do I need to prioritize it? it enough? I'd say move it up that list because okay. okay, perfect. We'll do <laughs> without spoiling anything. 
it reminds me a lot of everything everywhere all at once and this sort of breed of storytelling that's always been out there but is getting i think more and more popular right now which i think is like existential sci-fi fantasy and mm -hmm. so it's just so good it deals with parallel universes and breaking time and space and the series is so deep and has such an emotional core about just being human and it's really extraordinary and i want to rewatch it all the time because there's so many layers i want to peel back so it is just great the second series was three four years after the first series and it's does something totally different but so cool and i can't recommend it enough truly i've only seen the first season so far but i really liked it and the second season's on my list of stuff to watch but i have a backlog right now so <laughs> you know. and it's an extra fun if you're new yorkers like guido and i are or if you want to have that new york feel in something because it's very authentic in it's new yorkness yeah shot on the streets and very new york yeah i can't think of anything that i've seen natasha leone in that i haven't enjoyed yeah mm -hmm. agreed she has some new movie that's coming out i think peach's christ is involved with it too where yes. it's like she's basically like making snuff films and then showing them off at her mom and pop local theater yeah all, all about evil it's actually from 2010 but they're is finally really? doing a, they're finally doing a mass market dvd release they did a limited edition dvd release years ago and peach's christ <sighs> has continued showing it in san francisco and we've never seen it because it's been so hard to come by and we can't wait till this yeah. summer when the DVD comes out and we can finally see it after 12 years of waiting. Because speaking of the multiverse, it stars none other than Cassandra Peterson, Elvira herself. So everything comes full circle back to Elvira. God, it's perfect. <laughs> my mind is blown right now. Oh, my goodness gracious. Ugh. My gosh. <laughs> it's funny because I remember like last year, Jessica, you and I were talking about, we should like see if we can get Elvira on. It probably wouldn't be too bad. We could probably get her if we write like an impassioned letter. And then I think two days later, all of a sudden it was yeah. like, oh, Elvira has been living with a woman for 20 years. And we're like, oh, fuck. Everyone's going to want to talk to her We messaged each other and we're like, well. <laughs> Maybe we'll wait a year. But also a recurring theme in our conversations is, God, can you imagine the self-control necessary to be married to Elvira for 20 years and just yes. not spill that tea? Come on. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, Big, a bigger person than I as I sit here with a microphone in my face. <laughs> we stand a queen. We stand two queens now, I guess. But whatever. Yeah, we do. <laughs> well, Mike, what about you reading, watching? What's it been? I'm always consuming way too much media, but Petaluma recently had their antique fair. And so Sarah and I went and I came across some old DC Comics Blue Ribbon Digests, which they, these are, they're basically their digest sized comics anthologies that ran from the 70s through the mid 80s and they reprinted old comics. And so it's like a Reader's Digest collection of classic DC stories. And I think that these were basically meant to be sold in like drugstores and supermarkets. I remember my grandma buying me some when I was a kid when I was visiting her in Texas, but I found some really fun ones. There was a bunch of like classic Superman stories. And then they also had three Jonah Hex issues, which I wound up picking up. And so it's fun to reread all these classic DC stories that I wouldn't necessarily have been able to read otherwise. Nice. Yeah. How about you? 
I recently read the first two volumes of Paper Girls, mm. which we discussed recently on an episode of our friend Lance's podcast, Comic Book Keepers. I won't go too far into it because I want to save some for the episode. Go listen to it. So soft pitch there, but it's really good. I still need to go pick up more volumes. And that's actually what I think I'm going to be doing today is going to pick up more volumes of Paper Girls. And they're really thin little volumes. I got through both of them in just one day. They're fun little reads and they're pretty intense, but they're very good. So again, I'm not going to spoil anything. Just go listen to the episode. Go read them. That's it. And is that TV show out this year? <laughs> There's a TV series? What? Yeah, Amazon Prime is doing a TV series. It's, I think it's due out in 2023. I can't remember okay. for certain, though. I think there was a teaser, but it might have just been like the logo or something. But I vaguely remember see. something in the few weeks ago. Hopefully it does better than uh, Why the Last Man did. Because I know that really didn't, I think that got like one season and it got very mixed reviews. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize I was going to be so relevant without trying. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> and I purposefully don't seek out, like, I don't watch trailers as a rule. Mm -hmm. I don't watch trailers. I feel like they spoil all the good bits. Yes. I, I don't even, honestly, I don't even want to know who's in it. Because honestly, if it's a Marvel movie, like, you already got me. Mm -hmm. I'm already, like, I'm already going. <laughs> Just throw the title at me and I'm all cool. I'm there. Check me in. But I, I don't need the teaser. If it's a good movie, I'll hear that it's a good movie. I'll hear the things I need to hear about it to drive me to go see it. But I don't want you showing me everything <laughs> before yes. I go see it. We have a new no trailer policy for the most part, unless it's a horror movie starring people we've never heard of where it's, do I want to give this 90 minutes of my time? Let me check out the trailer. But if it's anything right. I want to go see, like you said, Marvel, something like that, I'm already going to get a ticket. Why watch the trailer? I'd rather be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, you're not even going to get a good grasp of the soundtrack or anything because they make all the soundtracks, to my understanding, for the trailers. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not even like you're going to get the music from the yes. movie to even have that little nibble of it, which <laughs> bothers me, by the way, as a person that really enjoys how music meshes with the action of films. Yes. Mm -hmm. I remember when they had the trailer for The Two Towers of Return of the King, and it was the soundtrack to Requiem for a Dream, the famous, like, Kronos <laughs> Quartet string over the trailer and this was the official trailer and it was like you've just taken the music from a movie about drugs and put it over the movie about the hobbits <laughs> do you remember when they made what? that warcraft movie do you remember how like the trailer had dubstep in it and i was like what is this nonsense i don't remember that i just i remember sitting there in the theater for something else and they had the warcraft trailer and first of all i don't give a shit about warcraft i just it's never been something that really suck me in but yeah they have this whole thing where they do dubstep and the bass drops right when they have some like action moment i was like what is this garbage this is hot garbage it always feels like such an afterthought <laughs> oh so what do you guys say we swing into our main topic <laughs> yeah it's gonna be a lot of it <laughs> Listen, I, I am the dad joke. Let me exist. <laughs> yeah, but I'm the actual dad here. <laughs> you know what? What? Why you got to be technical about it? Why you got to yeah. be like this? <laughs> Stop stepping on my toes. 
listen, does it count if I allow people to call me daddy? Yeah. <laughs> Fair. Touche. <laughs> As I... <laughs> <laughs> As I start unlacing my Doc Martens. <laughs> oh. So we're here to talk about the Spider-Man films, all of them, every single one, including the newest film in the Spidey franchise, Spider-Man No Way Home. I'll also swing in with a little bit of history and shoot some webs of fun facts about Spider-Man in film. I told you it wasn't going to get any better. Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but before we delve too far into it, what is everyone's experience and earliest memory with Spider-Man, not only in films, but other sources of media in your life? Whoever would like to start, more than happy. Okay, I'll jump in. You know, yeah, do so, it. <laughs> I was never a big Spider-Man comic reader. I, I was reading lots of other Marvel titles, especially X-Men from age five on, which is the, the mid 80s. And so my Spider-Man introduction is Spider-Man and his amazing friends because Iceman's in it. So I would enjoy that because on VHSs that I'd rent because it was an X-Men connection. And then his video games in the 90s, before his animated series, even Spider-Man had the X-Men in him because you fought Arcade. Yes. So that was really my first exposure to Spider-Man media, including comics. And then as a big Marvel fan, I would read some of the comics more and more in the 90s and beyond and see all the movies in the theaters first run. But Spider-Man was never my big character. So that was my introduction was through his crossover with X-Men. Mm -hmm. That game was so hard. I never beat it. <laughs> Very difficult. You can never get past storm stage where she's like oh, underwater. underwater? Oh my gosh, that was the worst. Yes. The Spider-Man <laughs> levels were okay. Wolverine, fine. Yeah, and Gambit had that giant Indiana Jones giant ball chasing after him. Oh my gosh. But yeah, I, I was much more of a Spider-Man person. Spider-Man was my main character that I was into as a kid. And at the same time, one was Spider-Man, the animated series on Fox television. So I watched that religiously, that along, of course, with X-Men, the animated series. Those were the two ones and Batman, the animated series, too. But then also Spider-Man comics were pretty big for me. I went back and reread a lot of the older comics, really, especially the Todd McFarlane years. I would go back and collect those. But then I was never a really a sequential comic book buyer. I would I would grab ones that had a, a villain I loved on the cover or something like that. The only one that I bought everyone of was Spider-Man. And of course, I was also buying Spider-Man at probably the most confusing time for Spider-Man, which was the clone saga. I was about to ask. Yeah, that was the time I was buying it. And he also adopted all the other identities when he was Ricochet for a while. That was the time, but that was what I was buying every single issue of and reading. Nice. Mike, what about you? Yeah, I'm I'm more closely aligned with Rob on this one. I'm not sure when I first got introduced to Spider-Man, but I I think it was again during one of my summers in Texas as a kid because the earliest memory that I can recall is watching one of his cartoons at my grandma's house because we were in Texas in the summer. And so you couldn't really go outside because you'd melt. 
<laughs> and so we would go to the video store and she would just rent me a lot of VHS stuff. And they had a bunch of Spider-Man cartoons because there'd been a number of them from, I think, the 60s through the early 80s. And like Spider-Man and his amazing friends was a mainstay. But by that point in time, it was like the mid 80s. One of the first video games I ever got my dad brought home was it's the Spider-Man part of a series called Quest Probe, which we are absolutely doing an episode on because there's a whole comic book connection and it's bonkers noted but yeah but spider-man was like a pretty massive character by that time and he saturated my childhood i got into comics when there were four or five different ongoing spider-man series and that was right around the time that todd mcfarlane and eric larson and mark bagley were all doing work on the character but i've consumed just about every piece of spider-man media on television and in theater since then and i've played i think almost every video game that they put out like i remember playing Spider-Man and the X-Men, which was an exercise in frustration, but there was also <laughs> a really good video game on Game Boy, if I remember right. There was also the arcade game that was like the beat-em-up that you'd play with your friends and just feed quarters into because your health was constantly going down. Yeah, it's a character that I've always really vibed with, to be honest. And I was a photography major in college. I was really hoping to be a photojournalist when I grew up, and unfortunately, that's not the way that media works today. But I always vibed with the character who was the dirt poor photojournalist. You could never quite make it big. Shocking. <laughs> yeah. So where do you fall in this, Jessica? I'm curious. I really used to like the Spider-Man animated series, although I did watch it sparingly, but I really enjoyed it when I did watch it. And the Toby Spider-Man came out when I was in high school. So, of course, it seeped into my life. But my first real love of this franchise was the Spider-Man cartoon maker which was a PC game released in 1995. And my brother and I were obsessed with it. We used to play it on the shared family computer because back in the day, you had like a room and it was like dedicated <laughs> to the computer. Ours was called the playroom. <laughs> and, and we got our cousin in on it. And after a heavy, like a summer of heavy indoctrination, and it sounds like I'm introing a cult or something, but it felt that way at the time. <laughs> And it was cool. Uh, it had a lot of options to make your own animated movies. And you could set the backgrounds with standard scenes taken from the animated series, like cityscapes and rooms that were featured in the show. And then you had the option to put in characters or draw things yourself. But the characters had really limited movement and sound effects. Some were just like distressed bystanders who would wave their arms up and down in one specific way and go, help me, help me, help. And it's okay. Turn the sound off of her. She's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then there were all these different angles of Spidey, like doing one type of web shooting, but it was a ton of fun. And you could also record your own voice over the film. And so we had one of those like mics you had to plug in and it looked like a gooseneck back in the day, man, the nineties though, they were a <laughs> wild time. <laughs> and it was just such a cool and imaginative tool, especially at the onset of the early part of the boom of the home computer being like a staple item in most households. So that's what we used to do. Also, we used to throw red afros on them and say, did somebody say McDonald's? And I'm not really sure why we did that. But every character got a red afro at the end, and then there was a big M in the middle. <laughs> so that's how much commercialism seeps into our lives. <laughs> it sounds like a good gateway drug for fan fiction, though. Did you then <laughs> later get into fan fiction? 
I did not. Surprisingly, there was uh. no Ronald McDonald, like, <laughs> Spider-Man fan fiction in the end. <laughs> I guess anything is possible, and this is a new world. It's a new terrifying world. <laughs> Why not bring that monstrosity into it? <laughs> So the reason that I wanted to do this episode was in response to the newest film in the Spider-Man franchise, No Way Home. Having a podcast about comic books and their related appearances and other forms of media gave just the absolute best reason to be able to have a broader discussion about not only this film, but about all of the films in this very Spidey franchise that I just love so much at this point. Now, for this episode, we started our journey with the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films starring Tobey Maguire, and I'm just going to run through all of the films here, the first of which was released in 2002. However, did you know that there was a Spider-Man movie that was made in the 1970s? Now, before you get too excited, it was a made-for-TV movie. It was released in 1977, but I would like to play for you the trailer for this film. I would like to add that it's incredibly poor quality video. I could not find anything better. I searched. I tried, my <laughs> friend, with what I could find. But you are definitely going to get the idea of the vibe. Do you guys have the ability to open and watch the trailer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. The world's favorite comic book hero, followed by 84 million readers a year. Now, he comes alive. For the first time on the screen, you'll see it all. The spectacular adventures of the amazing Spider-Man. He can do the things a spider does, you know, climb walls and, and spin webs, and he's very, very strong. You've heard about him. You've read about him. Now, you'll see him in action. Kill him. Why is he fighting ninjas? No challenge is too great. <laughs> no enemy is too strong. The most popular, most daring, most exciting superhero in the entire world. At last, he comes alive for his most incredible adventure. Oh. Whoa. That is from Spider Net. takes on a madman who's turning the streets into a siege of terror. More and more people are being mysteriously hypnotized into threatening the entire city and destroying themselves. Look up high. <laughs> all his fantastic spider powers to battle the most evil forces ever imagined. Again, why is he fighting ninjas with kendo swords? (laughs) Astounding live action excitement. The super adventure of everybody's favorite superhero. Spider-Man. Now he lives. Quite the tagline. Oh my! I don't know why um, we have these new movies because this was clearly perfect. You can't top that. So listen, you guys know my dedication to this podcast. (laughs) What you also need to know is that I watched that movie. (laughs) (laughs) 
I I took a bullet for this podcast, like we do here on Ten Cent Takes, you, and I watched mean, that movie. You mean the movie directed by E. W. Swackhammer? <laughs> yes, I sure, I sure as shit do. And boy, <laughs> It was it was swackalicious, man. It was just it, the whole track was that same music, like it was very seventies. Like, oh my god, just you guys. If you think the action in that trailer, which by the way, for the listeners, was horrendous. The action <laughs> it's scenes real bad. were horrendous. Like, they looked real slow. I'm willing to bet they didn't yeah. actually have a fight choreographer. I'm willing to bet yeah. because there was a couple of moments where they just pause and then Spidey does like a roundhouse kick or something. Yep. Or like half somersault. <laughs> yeah, but like one of the ninjas was on the ground in the hallway and he's just kneeling there and Spidey uses him as a springboard and then comes back and hits him like... Okay. At one point, he has to negotiate over half a wall, and he's just, uh, Rolf? And he just has to chuck himself over, and I was like, that was not as graceful as Spider-Man is supposed to be, like... (laughs) It looks better than Debbie Does Dallas, I don't know, in terms of 70s movies we've had to watch. I actually would agree with that. It has the same score, too. (laughs) I know, right? No, it very much could have been interchangeable, if we're being honest. So yeah, that was the trailer for the first film in an early Spider-Man film trilogy, starting with a film titled Spider-Man, which premiered on CBS on September 14th, 1977, and was later released to VHS in 1980. It was directed again by E.W. Swackhammer. Hammer? Unsure. (laughs) And starred Nicholas Hammond as Peter Parker. While this was released as a film, it actually served a double purpose. It also was technically the pilot episode for the TV series The Amazing Spider-Man with the same director and cast. There were two other films released onto VHS from the series, including the second of the trilogy titled Deadly Dust, which does not sound threatening at all, (laughs) and (laughs) was taken from a two-part episode of the same name and aired in 1978. and. The Dragon's Challenge, which was the series finale of the Amazing Spider-Man series, although the show's episode was titled The Chinese Web and initially aired in 1979. Again, for research purposes, I did watch the first of these movies. I could not go any further than that, just emotionally. (laughs) And again, if you think the trailer was a 70s dream, it's got nothing on the full film. Everyone, and absolutely everyone, was in bell-bottoms. And (laughs) Mm. the music, again, was such a time capsule, did not vary at all. It was all just whatever you heard right now. (laughs) (laughs) And that was both the energetic and the subdued ones. They'd have little moments where they were, like, doing something serious, and they're like, (laughs) and it's all, man, there it is. (laughs) You can't even get away from it during the slow bits. Jessica, who is the villain in the film? Oh shit! I don't even. Re- it just, <laughs> I don't even remember. Generic. Honestly, not, not I one do of the not. classic. <laughs> the character in Marvel who probably has more villains than anybody else, and they just they chose a oh, generic yeah. character. <laughs> they did have a lot of random Asian aesthetic people mm-hmm. like fighting some sort of fight type. Not anything I've ever seen before. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the thing is because they make it sound like it's a weird blend of the Purple Man and Kingpin, but I think it was an original character. I think I've seen this. I may. Yeah. Have you? <laughs> this would not surprise me. 
that footage felt real familiar. So I'm pretty sure I saw this when I was like under the age of 10. <laughs> Mike, um, I agree. I, I think I've seen it. There's a there was a channel or is it still a channel? New York WPIX that used to play all these kind of movies that Guido and I grew up with. That's yeah. where I saw the Matt Salinger Captain America, which is very similar kind of vibe to this. The <sighs> Dolph Lundgren. I have such a soft spot for that. Yeah, all those things. But yeah. I, as soon as I saw this, I was like, I think I have seen this somewhere. But many years ago in a fever dream. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. And the plot says when a mysterious guru, and guru is capitalized like a proper noun, places people under mind control. <laughs> oh, wait, here he is. His name is Edward Byron. That's his character name. So that's right. That's, it was so I, nondescript. I was <laughs> like, he didn't have a formalized character name. He didn't get his own title. He just was subdued out to like mind control people. It was creepy. You like mind control them and then he made them run their cars into walls so they died. <laughs> yeah. Like he would have them rob banks or whatever and then put the money in whatever car and then go run the car into a wall and then an accomplice would come and take the money out of the car before the cops showed up because I knew where the guy was going to hit the oh, wall or clever. whatever. But again, it's very Purple Man-esque. Yeah. I think they really made that character terrifying in the Jessica Jones series. Mm. Agreed. And before we move on from it, did the trailer say... 84 million readers of Spider-Man? Yeah, they did. I think I that's caught what that it too. said, and I'm really unclear how they reached that, that number. That. <laughs> I was wondering about that, too. It's probably like the total print run of Spider-Man comics yeah. in the, the, what, 15 years or so? that he's been So they're assuming stands. every single issue of Spider-Man was read by a different person, right? That's every how issue, these numbers work, right? right all 300,000 <laughs> issues of each month were read by a new 300,000 people the next month. I don't know how else you get to 84 million. I don't know. It's not like Stan Lee to exaggerate the truth like that, though. <laughs> <laughs> His otherworldly presence is right behind you, isn't it? <laughs> Marvel just bought the rights to his likeness and name, too. So like, yeah. they're about to bring him Oof. back. Yeah. Which I'm not real Oof. thrilled with, but okay. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say woof in advance. <laughs> There's probably going to be some oh like Stan gosh. character actor walking around Disney World parks. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thanks. I hate it. Yeah, I, hard to say. I'm like groaning just thinking about it. Good Lord. So yeah, last closing thought about this 70s one. The 70s are, it's one of my favorite eras. I love that era, but it was a little 70s for me. So just, <laughs> I'm, I'm throwing that out there. <laughs> that If that's not your aesthetic at all, like, maybe just don't watch it. Maybe don't. <laughs> Is there a scene in a disco? If there's not, they really missed a chance on that. Oh, shit. There probably is, if not in the main movie, but like in the TV show. Here's the thing. They did not have a disco, but what they did do was part of the mind control was they had these flashing light colors and they were in what was like a cult, basically. And so it felt very much like a little mind control disco in a way. <laughs> and I'm into like, that. Looked like everyone was getting arrested, kind of, because it did flash between <laughs> red and blue. It's whatever. <laughs> There was also a Japanese film directed by Koichi Takimoto, which was also titled Spider-Man and was released in 1978 after the release of an eight-part television series of the same name. This film, as well as the television series, is actually available to stream on Marvel's official website if you're at all interested. Oh, that's super cool. I had no idea about that. Yeah, I'm going to check it out later on. I did, I did not get to that. 
There's also a great episode about it. It's the first episode of Marvel's 616, the docuseries they did on Disney+. Plus. So they did a whole Mm. episode about the history of the Japanese Spider-Man. The guy that played Spider-Man is interviewed as part of the documentary. It's very cool. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. We'll have to check that out. That's very cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's a loose adaptation, let's say. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't he ride a motorcycle? Am I misremembering that? Yes, he does ride a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. And there's a a typical sort of Voltron Power Ranger-esque element. And yeah, really. I'm not hearing any deal breakers here. (laughs) (laughs) If anything, those are selling points for sure. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I, I don't want to get into it too much because this is something that I, I may want to cover in a more full and meaningful way later on. But there were some licensing issues, contractual bullshit, and a bankruptcy that left the Spider-Man franchise in the hands of Sony, which is the studio from which our next hero emerges. One thing that I did find interesting in this stipulation in the licensing, Robert Guido, do you want to read this quote I pulled from my very highbrow source, Lewicki? <laughs> Sony's 1998 mm. license covering all Spider-Man films, including 900 characters related to Spider-Man, is perpetual provided that Sony releases a new Spider-Man film at least once every 5.75 years. Think about that as we move forward <laughs> through our adventure here. <laughs> well, I mean, this goes back to how we've talked about this in earlier episodes about how Marvel basically after they'd been bought by Ron Perlman he drove them into the ground and then they had to have a fire sale and they basically auctioned off all the movie and TV rights in order to allow themselves to survive. Exactly. The next adaptation of the films we did watch, which was titled Spider-Man, and it was first released in 2002 and it starred Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker, Kirsten Dunst as Mary Jane, and was directed by Sam Raimi. In researching for this episode, I found a great quote from an article on Heroic Hollywood from Raimi about his interest in getting involved in the Spider-Man universe. Guido or Rob, whoever would like to, would you like to read this quote? Sure. I directed the first Spider-Man film because I was a huge fan of Stan Lee's brilliant character. Peter Parker and Spider-Man were an important part of my teenage years. I thought it was moving how he sacrificed for others, how hard he worked to protect innocent people. And all the while, I had to take care of his Aunt May and do his homework to boot. His self-sacrifice resonated with me. He was a truly good person. We can identify with characters in a comprehensible story. Stories of heroes like Peter Parker remind us what we are capable of. Maybe you're one of those people that like to be reminded of the good you are capable of. Now, get out there and do something about it. Yeah, so I thought that was nice. So Spider-Man 2 was released in 2004 and Spider-Man 3 in 2007, both with the same director and same core cast. In 2007, the same team started work on Spider-Man 4, which would have featured John Malkovich as the villain Vulture. And they were also in talks about the continuation films in the form of Spider-Man 5 and 6, but all three projects were scrapped. There have been fans clamoring for continuations of this film series since those film projects were nixed, and recently that collective voice has increased due to a certain actor's reappearance in No Way Home. (laughs) (laughs) Will we get another Spider-Man out of the Toby Mac series? It is unclear at this point, but there sure will be if the fans have anything to do with it. 
Do we know why further movies weren't made like four, five, and six? Because I remember Spider-Man 3 made a pretty healthy amount of money. I don't think it was considered a box office failure. Raimi left, which okay. was part of what canceled it. I don't know if there were other variables. He clashed with Avi Arad, didn't he? I believe so. Yeah, and Avi Arad, I know, was really the driving force behind putting Venom in the third movie. And that's the thing is, I don't remember most of the details because it's been a while. But yeah, okay. Yeah. It looks like it was disagreements between Sony and Raimi. <laughs> yeah. So, because they start, they were going to push the film and then they ended up like just nixing it. So, mm-hmm. I think it was drama. I think it was just film <laughs> drama. <laughs> so, the next set of Spidey films was the Amazing Spider Man series, directed by Mark Webb and starring Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker and Emma Stone as Gwen, Peter's love interest in this iteration. In total, we got The Amazing Spider-Man in 2012 and Amazing Spider-Man 2 in 2014. Like its predecessor, this series also had an additional film in the works that would have been the third in the series at that point in time, but also revealed its intention to build a larger world around the Spider-Man kind of universe through a series of other spinoffs and films in that Spider-Verse. It feels like they basically bit off more than they could chew as far as Sony goes. They created all of these spinoff ideas only to find that Amazing Spider-Man 2 was really underperforming and it led Sony to cancel the continuations and spinoffs as a whole. And as of today, there are no new films of this series being considered, but as was the case with McGuire, fans of Amazing Spider-Man are calling for Garfield's return to the big screen. So we will see. Which, I mean, it's funny that it's considered a movie that underperformed because it made like almost $800 million at the box office in 2014, but like globally, but it's still just, huh. I don't know. I, I do have to say that I had not watched The Amazing Spider-Man 2. I didn't realize that until I was prepping for this episode, and then I watched the trailer and I went, oh, I don't think I ever watched this, so I actually rented it. <laughs> and like The Amazing Spider-Man movies are just, they're not objectively good no they feel very phoned in paint by numbers one of my friends described it once as a movie made by accountants yeah (laughs) oh it's just hitting a checklist of things to do and it was like yeah but that's a totally fair way to describe it we'll talk later about my feelings about andrew garfield but i really didn't like that in the first movie he had like muzzle flashes when he fired off his web shooters at people when he was taking down bad guys it was like oh okay (laughs) that's Mm. hmm yeah I feel it. Prior to the next set of films, there were talks back and forth about different films. Marvel had been interested in bringing Spidey back into the fold and pull him into the MCU and had been trying to discuss as much going back to at least 2014. There was also discussion about trying to do a crossover with Maguire and Garfield Spider-Man characters prior to this even happening in the first place. So we could have had a mini multiverse episode sooner in our spider experiences, which might have been neat. It'd be interesting to see what they would have done with it back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another multiverse. So it would have been less safe, which could have led to it being, I'd say, really bad or really a lot more interesting because it feels like waiting the amount of time that they did made it a really safe bet that it was going to be the Mm -hmm. billion dollar moneymaker that it was yeah i gotta say that the sony movies since spider-man 3 so like we had spider-man 3 we had the amazing spider-man and amazing spider-man 2 
those three movies were not great. And I have to say that most of Sony's movies these days are objectively not good. Like I'm, I just, I haven't, I can't think of any that I've seen that's been good. I remember at one point, what was it? Pixels. You remember that awful Adam Sandler movie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was like, I think I don't quote me on this directly, but at the time when it came out, it was like the highest grossing movie of the year for Sony. I keep on feeling like Sony films are desperate for a hit and they haven't really had one in a while. At least I may be forgetting something, but at least at that point in time, they were not producing critical or commercial darlings. So I feel like if they had done something like a mini Spider-Verse, I feel like it would have been soulless for lack of a better term. I mean, until I started redoing my research, I forgot that it was Sony. <laughs> so I just. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and. I saw that the 77 movie was made by Columbia, which is owned by Sony. It wasn't owned mm -hmm. by Sony in 1977, but that means Columbia yeah. slash Sony has been in the Spider-Man business since 1977, way before yeah. they wow. had the exclusive rights to that character. Yeah. And I think well, that was part of what played into it as well. And, and that was what I think I read into it. I, I didn't want to get too in the weeds, <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? And give all this, the stupid so little much. contractual details. Yeah. There yeah. is. Yeah. Well, a lot of My it head was swimming. <laughs> like reports because a lot of that stuff's not public. So it'll leak out through reports. And so it's so complex and convoluted. But Mike, I think you're mm -hmm. right. Sony for years, really, until I feel like the MCU Spider-Man, Sony was always a company that was going to be bought by someone. It was never, mm -hmm. even the hardware was not selling well enough. So there were rumors of Amazon buying it for years and Apple buying it for years. So I don't think Sony had a lot of success until Spider-Man MCU. Even more precisely than that, I think I've also seen a lot of rumors about Sony selling Columbia and getting out of the content game as well and really yeah. be going back to just being an electronics company which is what they are at the heart now of course now that they have made the what third bit most successful film of all time that probably will not happen because they are doing very well but for many years i had heard they're not really a content company they'll sell columbia back to someone who probably is a little bit more in the content world but i doubt that will happen now it feels like Sony was like, I don't know, guys, this doesn't, I'm back at it. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After waiting so long for a hit, they're like, no, guys, we got one. We got one. <laughs> yeah, a real second win there. Yeah. They also had their own game studios for all, but they bought Insomniac, the company that did the Spider-Man games recently for PlayStation, which are mm -hmm. excellent. Like, they're great. So, like, I feel like they're pretty committed now to content at this point. Spider-Man content. <laughs> I don't know what else they're yeah. doing. <laughs> the current rumor that's floating around is that they're going to buy Take-Two Interactive, the oh. guys who make Grand Theft Auto, because I think this is coming from the fact that Grand Theft Auto has been a packaged game with the PlayStation consoles for a long time, and Grand Theft Auto is the most profitable piece of media ever. So I think at this point, Sony is not looking to get bought. <laughs> Or really sell off their content producing companies. But yeah, a couple of years ago, before they really started hitting home runs again, I can see how they would want to get out of it. Yeah. I was just trying to see, have they done a Grand Theft Auto movie? Because I feel like, I mean. Mm -mm, no. See, okay. Yeah, no, see. There is a there is a 19, speaking of the 1977, there is a 1977 film called Grand Theft Auto. 
but I really don't think that relates. No, to... no, there's been talk about that. Yeah, you... I think I'm trying to think like of any movies. It's, like it's just a bunch of cars exploding. <laughs> I know. The, God. The, uh, it's it's a that's a Ron Howard movie actually. It's his first movie that he Is ever it? directed was Is Grand Theft Jesus Auto Christ. for Roger Corman. That... Yeah. Oh my god! Amazing. And, yep, and there he, there he motherfucking is. And in fact, <laughs> and, yeah. oh. and in fact, I think Roger got money to like this day from selling the Grand Theft Auto name, which he also did for Fast and the Furious as well, which oh, was also really like name of a Roger Corman movie. So Roger Corman has made some money off of some car movies for many decades. <laughs> if it was a Roger Corman film in the seventies, it would have been part of New World Entertainment, right? Yes. Yeah, and that's the company that eventually bought Marvel in the 80s. And then <laughs> they were going through their financial problems, and they're the ones who sold it to Ron Perlman, you know, who then did what he did. But yeah. Here's what's going to bring it all the way back, Mike and Jessica, is what movie was made by New World Cinema and then got dumped because they were going through their own financial problems? Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. So what? <laughs> wow. All He's comes back to Elvira lady. at the end of wow. the day. Wow, Elvira, hit us yeah. up collectively, individually. <laughs> you hit us up individually. I hope it's both of us. <laughs> the two degrees of Elvira. <laughs> right, exactly. I would like to point out that there is a very 70s van on this thing, and there are like half naked people falling out of this van. <laughs> Amazing. Like, this woman is wearing like legit underwear, and her bra is unclasped, and she's like falling out backwards. It's all oh, this is fun. The guy is just wearing a pair of 70s like white boxers. And there's also a woman who's wearing what looks like just a bra driving the van. <laughs> so that's cute. Yeah, that's fun to watch. Any hoodle. <laughs> We've diverged so far. I know. It's okay. It's okay. This is what our podcast is, though. So, yeah. So, in, in 2016, the pieces finally fell into place. The right contracts were signed, which, by the way, I'm, again, sparing y'all a lot of the contractual bullshit. But check it on a Wikipedia if you're interested in learning more. That's where I got most of my information, just to be completely transparent. They do a nice overview of this. So, anyways, 2016. Picture it. Tom Holland. <laughs> he signed to six movies total, three solo and three MCU team-up films. By the way, fun fact, they retconned Peter Parker into the MCU, stating that the child in the Iron Man mask whom Iron Man saves from a drone attack in the film Iron Man 2 from 2010 was Peter Parker. Oh, really? Okay. That's what they're trying to claim. And so making that his Peter Parker's first true appearance in the MCU. The child was actually played by Max Favreau, not Tom Holland. Is that John's son? That would be so. my assumption. <laughs> yeah. I didn't actually look, but I made a reasonable guess. <laughs> Knowing that question might come up. So I did not ask you to watch the other MCU films that include Spider-Man, but let's be honest, I know you've seen them already. So I wasn't truly very worried about it. <laughs> we won't be discussing those today, but I love a good conversation about the MCU. So we can revisit this at some point, my friends, if you would like to. <laughs> So Holland is introduced onto the scene in Captain America Civil War in 2016. And in 2017, he starred in his first solo film, Spider-Man Homecoming, which featured a non-Zendaya love interest that we are only going to mention briefly. Can we? Okay, I'm sorry. Can we all agree 
that Liz just wasn't that into Peter. Sure. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Like, she was, like, slightly skeeved out at the little nerd, like, trying to follow her around. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, yeah. I was, like, yeah. happy to see her in the rearview mirror. I was, too. <laughs> she wasn't compelling to me. She's a great actress. I like her. Great actor. I did not find her a compelling or quite frankly, a character with chemistry with this other Peter Parker character. You know, they just don't they didn't have a vibe. No, she was honestly, she was a prop more than a character. She didn't have mm-hmm. yes. much to yeah. do other than be drooled over and then whatever. Yeah, I didn't love it, but we got rid of her. It's fine. Not really rid of her. She's fine. Everything's fine. She's great. <laughs> she moved everyone. She's on the cover of a magazine in uh, No Way Home. Oh, I didn't even catch that. She's on on the newsstand. That's hilarious. She's on, so she's become some kind of celebrity because she's on the cover of one of the magazines in the, on the newsstand in No Way Home. Okay, that's very clever. I love those little <laughs> Easter. I did not see that. Thank you for letting me know that. It's I'm gonna very, have to... It's almost impossible to see. But it's, okay, okay. It, well, when you know to look for it, it's there as the camera pans. I love the if you know, you knows Mm -hmm. from No Way Home. They did a few of those that I just was like, oh, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) So after that point, Holland appeared in Infinity Wars in 2018. Also released in 2018 was the other film I asked you to watch, the animated film and a deep dive into traveling the multiverse into the Spider-Verse starring Shameik Moore voicing Miles Morales Jake Johnson as Peter B. Parker as Spider-Man, Chris Pine as Peter Parker, Spider-Man, Haley Steinfeld as Gwen Stacy, and also includes John Mulaney as Peter Porker, Spider-Ham, Kamiko Glenn as Penny Parker, and Nicolas Cage as Peter Parker, Spider-Man Noir. It has more celebrities playing other characters, quite star-studded, as they say. (laughs) It was a fun one. This one was a good one. Oh, yeah. Agreed. I had no expectation that it was going to be that good. No, it took me a really long time to watch it. I just recently watched it and was very pleasantly surprised. Yeah, Yeah. and it's beautiful. Every moment of it is gorgeous. So the story and the cast and everything is amazing, but none of that even matters. You could watch it on mute and still enjoy it because it's just so gorgeous. Yeah, agreed. Back to Tom Holland who was back at it with the greater MCU in 2019, as he appeared in Avengers Endgame. And it was also a busy year, box office-wise, for Holland, as it also brought us Spider-Man Far From Home, with Zendaya being the love interest for reals, as is right. (laughs) Everything's right in the world, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I obviously feel strongly about the Tom Dia situation, so. It's the sacred timeline. (laughs) (laughs) It is. I agree with you. I'm glad we're in this timeline, (laughs) personally. It also had Jake Gyllenhaal as the villain Mysterio, which that was a fun casting as well. And in 2021, just last year, we received our most recent film and the topic du jour, Spider-Man No Way Home. So upcoming wise, there is also another film in the works set to be released in 2023 titled Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And in 2024, another film, a continuation of the last, is set to release titled Spider-Man Beyond the Spider-Verse. And that will land in our collective laps coming up soon, my friends. Woohoo! 
Can't wait. Extremely here for everything involved with those movies. Like, I think, isn't Oscar Isaac going to be Spider-Man 2099 too? Oh, wow. Are we just casting Oscar Isaac in everything now? But it's him in the the stinger. So I would think that he's just going to be carried over. Oh, gotcha. Oh, yeah. I like Oscar yeah. Isaac. I just do think there are other actors working in the world too, but no, they're not. <laughs> wait, are there? <laughs> There's wait. a couple. There's a couple. <laughs> no, but I love Spider-Man 2099 so much. One of my prized possessions is I have the white variant of his first issue and it's signed oh. by uh, Peter David. Cool. Nice. So again, I tasked each of you with rewatching or just being familiar with all of the Spider-Man films from Toby to Tom, including Miles Morales. And at this point in time, like which of the Spider-Man actors is your favorite and why? And collectively after that as well, do you have a favorite film? And let's maybe start with Rob this time, since I think we started with Guido last time. <laughs> sure. Trying to be fair. (laughs) (laughs) So my favorite Spider-Man is Tom Holland. And I really just think he just strikes just the perfect tone for me. I think uh, Tobey Maguire's fine. Never loved Tobey Maguire, frankly. Andrew Garfield, I think, is a great actor, but he always just looks and feels too cool to be Spider-Man. And even though Tom Holland is a very pretty man, but he just somehow gets that nerdiness of Peter Parker, I think, exactly right. He gets that tone that the MCU has, that little tongue-in-cheek, wink-to-the-audience thing that I really do think works so well. So, Really, he has become my Peter in so many ways. But in terms of my favorite film, I will say my favorite film is Into the Spider-Verse. I think this is just such a cool, beautiful film. And I think Spider-Man, even going back to the Sam Raimi movies, there's something about him that, I don't know, the CGI has just never been exactly right for me. I think the new... Sony Marvel movies have done it pretty well, but I it was the thing that never made me latch on to the Raimi movies is it always just didn't look exactly right. And I think there's something about just making it a fully animated movie that just really helps a lot. I love a lot of the dynamics, which I think I'll get into in some of our other sections, but that is a movie I can just rewatch over and over again. Yeah, it has that mid-aughts CGI that just looks floaty now and like a video mm-hmm, game cutscene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Guido, what about you? I don't want to steal Mike's thunder, and I previewed <laughs> what Mike's going to say. Mike, do you want to go first? Because I'm going to say the same thing as you. <laughs> okay. All right. I really love Jake Johnson as the older Spider-Man in Into the Spider-Verse. Like, I loved his whole character arc in the movie. I loved how he has that kind of God, I'm so over this vibe while he's still delivering like that snarky humor that I grew up with in the comic books. And that said, if I had to choose between one of the three Spider-Man from the live action movies, I'd probably go with Andrew Garfield, which is funny because I really don't like the Amazing Spider-Man movies. But I don't really think there's been a bad portrayal of Spider-Man, even if some of the movies themselves aren't great but Garfield felt like he was a really happy middle point of a street-level superhero who was also funny, and he felt fairly believable on an emotional level for me. 
But that said, my favorite movie is actually Into the Spider-Verse, which is probably what everyone's going to say here. <laughs> it's pro- For me, it's got a few special memories. Like I got to see a preview screening of it with some friends in the Castro Theater about a week before it came out in, in the States. And the directors wound up coming out afterwards and they did a Q&A session oh, wow. where they prioritized questions from kids that were in the audience, which I thought was really cool. Then I was like texting Sarah on the way home and I'm like, we, we have to see this and the kids will love it. And so on the drive home from the ferry, I stopped by our local theater and I bought tickets for us all. And so I think I'm pretty sure that was the first movie that we actually all saw together because the kids were still fairly young. But I was like, we need to see this in the theater. So yeah, I think it's an incredible movie. I love the message about family and, and character growth and all that. But like, it's also got some very special moments for me on a personal level. That's so sweet. Yes. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> you can now you can now steal my thunder. No, you get your thunder and I'll just <laughs> echo that Jake Johnson <laughs> is Spider-Man. I think Jake Johnson feels like the most accurate depiction of him because Spider-Man is a little selfish and Spider-Man is a little reluctant. And while I love Tom Holland, he's too pure. I think that all the Spider-Man that we've seen in the major movies have been too morally centered. And I know they toyed a little with it in some of the MCU with a little bit of reluctance from Tom Holland, but Jake Johnson just feels like the perfect Spider-Man that I always imagined in my head. So I agree with that. And Into the Spider-Verse, I think, is definitely the best of these movies, not just because it's a multiverse that I'm biased toward. But it's just, again, beautiful and so fun and complex in all the right ways and emotional in all the right ways. And I think it's so well executed. They were setting up Jake Johnson to be this big blockbuster leading man in Universal's Dark Universe series. Oh, were they? Jake Johnson As was... Well, Jake Johnson is introduced in The Mummy. Tom Cruise gets the top billing, but Jake Johnson is like the second banana hero. And it's a made up character, but he was going to be one of these characters that was then going to connect this universe. And they were going to groom him as being like this kind of big new star. And of course, that movie crashed and burned. So it's funny that then Jake Johnson got this great acclaim. We all seem to love him in this other interconnected world, but in an animated medium. Honestly, like Jake Johnson, I have yet to see him in anything where he is not stellar. Like he had Stump Down with Colby Smothers recently, and that's based on a Greg Rucka comic, and he's fantastic. He's got a new show on HBO called Minx, where he is just absolutely delightful as this kind of like low budget Hugh Hefner, and it's mm-hmm. fantastic. No, I really like him a lot as an actor. Yeah. If you like, I don't even know who he is. I couldn't even picture him. In video game, if you like video games, he also has a really great standalone episode of the show Mythic Quest, Guido, which you and I watched, where we go back into the past and follow this character for one episode. It's it's a really moving episode that kind of stands stands alone from the series. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which also Mythic Quest is a great TV show, and everyone should watch it. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Wow. That's so fun. Jessica. Rob, I was very aligned with you. <laughs> so definitely Tommy Hall. I've already <laughs> professed my love. I just think he's believable as an awkward, not so confident, 
17-year-old, 18-year-old kid. He makes bad decisions. He forgets things. He brings that energy that I that's really believable to somebody of the age he's supposed to be in a way that I don't feel like Tobey Maguire or Andrew Garfield really did. They felt a little older. They felt a little bit more mature. And maybe that was the intention, but I like how genuine it feels to grow with this character as he grows and really follow that in a way that feels like yes I am in high school because they're all supposed to be in high school they, the other two <laughs> don't feel like it no. <laughs> like, but for movie also very aligned with Rob <laughs> <laughs> is into the Spider-Verse and for a lot of the same reasons like I was just nodding like heavily <laughs> nodding while you were talking because it was a lot of what I had written as well which was that you can do so much more with animation you can do so much more with it than you can, even with the CGI that we have now. And it really is only limited by the creator's ability to create. And that's what I really enjoy about animation. Mm -hmm. And this movie in particular, because it was such a deep dive into different types of art, different ways of doing things, different colors, different visuals. And again, I don't think you have as much of an opportunity when you're bringing in live action characters and having to bring the actual like the feeling of owing the audience realism. Or it's we try so hard for realism and then it always just falls flat. It's, we try really hard to make like fur flow the right way and then it just looks really fucking strange. Like yeah, we're still not the quite there yet. <laughs> yes. And that, that almost weirds people out more. Uh -huh. But in animation, we don't have that expectation. And so it's that whole problem does not exist in general because you mm -hmm. go into it with the expectation that anything could happen. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, it's yeah. funny, Jessica, you and I are aligned and Mike and yeah. Edo are aligned. But I think in the other universe, we all chose Amazing Spider-Man 2, right? Oh <laughs> my exactly god. Right. There is that's... a universe where that is everyone's mm, exactly. collectively favorite yeah. film. That's the dark multiverse. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh. <laughs> so what about villains? Do you have a favorite villain out of the ones that were featured in any of the films we watched? And maybe we'll start with Mike this time. Yeah, sure. So I genuinely love Michael Keaton as the vulture. Like, I, I thought he had a really fun original origin. I loved how he started down this road because he was just trying to make a living and support his family. And and then basically the system wound up fucking him over. And I got to be honest, like, that scene where he's dropping the kids off for the prom mm -hmm. and, and he has that quiet moment where he literally, he threatens Peter. Like, he's all like, I got to give him the dad talk. And, and then he's just, no, like, here's the thing. I will kill you and your family. It's a scene that, like, I genuinely felt my chest getting tight. Like, I got chills the first mm -hmm. time I saw it. And all the other villains in the movies always have these huge moments where they get to chew the scenery. And I think it's those small, intimate scenes where you get to see them at their best or or worst. I'm looking at you eating your fucking pie, James Franco. But, <laughs> <laughs> like, Keaton, I thought, was just this really great choice. And I think he's really had a renaissance the last couple of years because people like <laughs> he had that hiatus for a while like i think after jack frost and all that and then he came back and he's just been a tour de force <laughs> since then god jack frost what a th oh yeah no <laughs> <laughs> let's maybe go next to guido so this is very easy for me it's katherine Hahn as dr octopus i that was great 
that she's she can do absolutely no wrong in anything ever. But it's not just the fact that it's Catherine Hahn. I really like I, that moment's really surprising when she you find out that she's Doc Ock. I think that's really fun. And then she's even though she only pretty much has that brief scene to be a villain in, she's fun and calculated and uh, a little bit Miss Frizzle from the Magic School Mm -hmm, Bus, but an evil Miss Frizzle. And Mm -hmm. that's very believable to me for Doc Ock. And it's Catherine Hahn. So (laughs) that's all I have to say. (laughs) Rob, you're next. So Mysterio is my favorite Spider-Man villain, period. I love him. I was always a movie guy growing up, so I loved him. I love in the movie that they kept him comic book accurate, which I think is a great thing that Marvel does in general and in the Spider-Man movies. And I think Jake is great in that part. However, I I always I didn't love that they took away some of the moviness from Mysterio that he is this special effects stunt guy. And that's one of the things that they were eventually going to do with Raimi and Bruce Campbell was going to play Mysterio in the original Raimi series. Okay, that would have been cool. Yeah, the idea was that because Bruce Campbell had all these cameos in all the different movies as different people, it was ultimately all going to be Mysterio and that it was going to be revealed (gasps) and have him like be this like long con, which would have been amazing. So I think I can never get this a game. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think I can never get that out of my head. So I I do love that portrayal, but I think if I had to choose my favorite villain out of all these movies, I would actually go with the Kingpin as depicted in into the spider verse as voiced by Liev Schreiber. The, The character design is amazing where he's just basically just a giant body with a head on top, no neck, Really cool character design. The voice, great New York kind of voice that he does. The character motivation is amazing and very moving. He's trying to get his wife back who has been killed. And so it actually gives this character a lot of depth to it, even though he doesn't have a lot of screen time. And then finally, the thing that makes this character so kick-ass is he kills Spider-Man in the movie with his bare hands. He crushes Chris Pine's Spider-Man to death. So I think he's the villain that wins, and he's also a villain that we can also see some compassion with. So I think he tops my list. Great answer. Great answer. I had a hard time deciding, and I was going back and forth, and I'm going to say something different than what I've even written, but I do want to say that I really wish that we could have seen John Malkovich as Vulture. That would have been really interesting. I had a moment where my chest got tight because I was like, she better not say fucking James Franco. (laughs) (laughs) What world do you think this is? That dude is like a wannabe supervillain in real life. Like, he's terrible. So, oh, yeah, 100%. And still nobody's favorite. And somehow he's still around. He's still kicking around. He's pretty canceled at this point, though. So I don't know. Yeah, I haven't heard about him in a while, but I also don't think about him very often. (laughs) He doesn't have space in my brain. But again, I kept going back and forth. But Willem Dafoe just does such a fucking bang up job being the Green Goblin and having that personality mm-hmm. split. And especially mm-hmm. in No Way Home, just the, the two different extremes of his character were just so compelling. 
And he's just such a good actor to begin with that I don't expect anything less than that. But it, it was just, it's cool to see him bring it to that character, bring it to a villain, because it just was so convincing. Yeah, good choice. Thank you. On that same villainous note, is there a particular baddie that you would have liked to have seen fighting a superhero, X-Men or Avenger from the MCU? And why would they make a good rivalry? And that's a particular baddie from Spider-Man fighting somebody else from the MCU. So like one of the Spider-Man film villains fighting against the Avengers or the the X-Men yeah. or something. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I'll kick it off. I, I think actually sure. I would love to see more Michael Keaton Vulture screen time, especially if he was going up against the Avengers where he's just basically using their own discarded tech that he salvaged and then basically repurposed and so you could have all these moments where it's like different designs of technology that Mm. are being used in ways they never expected and i think that'd be really great if bruce banner is sitting there at one point and just i never thought to use it that way or Hmm. rocket raccoon sitting there and just being like this guy's a genius so totally yeah i feel like rocket would be like are you sure you want to be a bad guy why don't you come hang out with me Guido, what about you? It's hard for me not to just go down a rabbit hole and say I'd like to see Catherine Hahn, Doc Hawk fight Catherine Hahn, Agatha Harkness and just have all my dreams come true. <laughs> but... I, you know what? I back that completely and I don't want anybody else to talk. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> just joking. Take just joking. Rob, you'll get your everyone. turn. <laughs> yeah, I think oh. if it wasn't that, I have to say that even though he's in one of the worst movies. I love Topher Grace as Eddie Brock. I think it's an interesting casting choice that worked well, even though the material is awful and the movie's awful. I don't mind it. I like it better than Tom Hardy. And so he could be someone I'd be okay with seeing him come back and be a real Venom character fully mm-hmm. developed. Okay. Yeah. Okay, Rob, you really do get a turn. What do you think? (laughs) I would love to see if I would love to see Mysterio come back because Mysterio's whole thing is that there he's all about illusions, right? So did he really die? And I think there was some speculation. Would he come back in No Way Home? But I think that's a perfect character to bring back in some way. And Guido, you probably would know this better than I would, but. Has he ever partnered with Arcade in the comics? Maybe an Arcade Mysterio collab against the X-Men down the road. Those are two characters that love to create illusions and grand fake worlds and things like that. That would be a really fun collaboration. I don't remember any appearances where the two of them teamed up. But the funny thing is that I think Arcade is technically a Spider-Man villain, isn't he? He first appeared in Marvel Team-Up, which was like Captain Britain's first appearance in the yeah, US Yeah, Spider-Man market. and Captain Britain, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, Yeah. Hmm. so like Arcade, yeah. Arcade is technically a Spider-Man villain too, technically. Oh. Yeah, he's been long on my list of, of villains I think would really translate well into the MCU kind of world, so maybe we'll see oh, yeah, him in the near future. Or Sony world, mm. I, unfortunately. <laughs> no, please not. <laughs> uh. I would be interested to see, I no, shocking no one after my last <laughs> rampage, I would love to see Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin go up against, and this might be a questionable casting choice, against Halle Berry's Storm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like, specifically. 
But just like generally for Storm, I think it would be really interesting to see what she would do with the weather to like fuck with this hoverboard or I mean, that shit's metal. It's all metal. Like crack Mm -hmm. some lightning on that bitch. You know what I'm saying? Throw like some wind his direction so he's like having a harder time controlling it or so that his little like balls of like green explosive death go in a different direction or i feel like there are so many things that she could do to affect not only the playing field but also what he does as a character and how he might react so i think that would be an interesting kind of mashup as long as she says do you know what happens when lightning strikes a goblin and then she says the same thing as everything else (laughs) because that's what she says to toad which is a line a lot of people made fun of it's rumored to be a Joss Whedon script doctor line, actually. But I love that line. I think that is a great moment when Holly Berry says that to Toad and then just fries him with the lightning. So as long as she does that to Willem Dafoe, that's perfect. There were a few reasons I said it was going to be questionable. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Next question. Do you guys have a favorite Aunt May and or Uncle Ben? I know Uncle Ben dies so quickly in most of these, it may be negligible <laughs> for him as a character. <laughs> like, he's really just a plot point. But so maybe you never had the chance to get attached to one of them. But what about maybe Aunt May then? <laughs> I'm all talking myself out of my own question. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing about Uncle Ben is that he is like Batman's parents at this point. He only exists to die. <laughs> and so anytime that he shows up in media, we know that his time is limited. I don't care about Uncle Ben. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. when we even when we covered the what if Uncle Ben had lived issue of what if, I did a lot of digging. And it's interesting, I guess, in the same way, it's like Batman's parents, although they've since changed that since Flashpoint, but that Uncle Ben has never come back. So every like every other character, especially in Spider-Man, his parents came back and they were actors and then you know, there's robots and clones, of course. But Uncle Ben has not come back. He was a ghost in one issue. So I think you're right. I think the character exists to be non-existent, I guess. I have that issue. Are you talking about 350? Yeah, it was. I think so. It was one of the anniversary issues. Yeah. He's not even a ghost. He's a hallucination because Peter has been beaten so severely that he has an extreme concussion. Mm. So he's, he's talking with Uncle Ben but then he shows up uh, to his, his NYU lab and he's like, oh, yeah, this is my Uncle Ben. It's funny. He's dead. And then he just passes out. And they're like, what the fuck were you doing? Because you have a very you know, intense concussion. And it, he tried to get into a fight with Dr. Doom, who just beat the stuffing out of him. <laughs> like, that was the thing was for the longest time that there was like a, a saying, which is like the only people who stay dead in the Marvel Universe are Bucky and Uncle Ben. And then mm-hmm. Bucky <laughs> eventually came back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but like Bucky was dead for 60 plus years. So he had a good mm-hmm. run staying in the ground. But yeah, they've <laughs> never brought Uncle Ben back because you can't. Like mm-hmm. he's too. Integral. Hear me out. <laughs> Hear me out. We should, and Uncle Ben should become some sort of either a villain, mm. which would also be like plot point, more like using him for plot, you know, which I yeah. also take issue with. Or bring him back as some side of like some sort of like an ass kicking return from the dead or, you know, flipping over multiverses. This is the Uncle Ben that never actually Mm -hmm. experienced having like Peter Parker in his life for one reason or another. And then he comes in and he's, but I do kick ass. (laughs) I'm so bored with the character in general. I'm like, I don't care. (laughs) 
Maybe it's because you haven't had enough of it. <laughs> we keep saying the name Uncle Ben over and over again, and now I can all I can picture is the racist rice. That's all I can think of. Oh, God. <laughs> racist rice tin. My mom used to have, like, decorative tins that didn't have anything in them, just, like, on the top of that space between the ceiling and the top of the cabinets in the kitchen. Just collecting dust up there, just looking down, judging everyone. <laughs> Okay, so now that I have ranted about the purpose of Uncle Ben, I'm Robin Guido. What, who is your favorite Aunt May? I'm curious. I have to go with Marissa Tomei, except for No Way Home. Because in spite of my finding her final moment and her getting to say the magic Spider-Man line and getting to say it the way it's written and not the way it's been since shortened i still think she's a woman in a refrigerator and it's really upsetting i like it it takes a lot away from this movie which i have actually a lot of negative feelings about but that's one of the main ones so some of it is just i love marissa tomei but why i think it also works is that it's a really drastic revision of aunt may and i think it works really well because you still have the relationship that you want between peter and aunt may and you still have that nurturing, caring, familial role that she can play. But it's a totally different depiction than we're used to. And I think it works really well. And I think Marissa Tomei is extraordinary. But No Way Home quite literally killed it. <laughs> yeah, you're saying a lot of the same things that I felt. I liked that she was given her own opportunity to become her own character. where She's feisty and she's funny and she's got her own motivations and her own things going on. and we see that she's dating and Rosemary Harris was like visually spot on. She didn't really get to do much. Same with Sally Field. I love Sally Field, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rob. Yeah. I think I am going to, this whole conversation has really made me realize how much I love into the spider verse, because I'm going to say <laughs> Lily Tomlin's portrayal of Aunt May in, into the spider verse, because I think she combines that feistiness that we're talking about with Marissa Tomei and a little bit more of that classic comic book Rosemary Harris she's the much older Anne feel but in Into the Spider-Verse she actually does get to kick ass in the movie she's like Spider-Man's Q almost she's the guardian of his <laughs> weapons and things like that and also it's Lily Tomlin who I just love in absolutely everything as well so i think that just helps so i think all the at mays are good but that lily would definitely be my choice very nice i'm going hearkening back to guido and mike <laughs> with marissa tomei i i think they they allowed this character to grow a little bit more and we were able to see more. And again, yeah, she did have her own motivations and she was allowed to be a more developed character. I was pointing very dramatically <laughs> at the camera when you were talking about her being fridged in No Way Home, because that was one of the, the big problems I had with that film was that I was like, oh, come on. I get you needed a place to write that line, but that's just like such a like an obvious refrigerator move. Yeah. <laughs> And so it was a bummer and it's, I liked her as a character and I, I think there could have been more to it and it could have played out differently, mm -hmm. I think. And it, it also, it allowed her to both have that line, but also be like the reason that like Peter was going to really commit like an, 
what we're led to believe is take a step that you can't backtrack from mm-hmm. in making a kill, which he up to this point really hasn't done. I And I like the idea of it makes a little bit more sense to me that the aunt would be somebody the age of your parents, right. <laughs> not somebody yes. the age of your grandparents, which yes. is how they've it almost feels like Aunt May is a great aunt mm-hmm. or it's your yeah. grandmother's sister yeah. or your grandmother's brother was uncle. It's like it feels more like along that familial line of having the really older family member, whereas it makes a little bit more sense that the sister or brother of your parents or the if you have an aunt, that they would be around the same age as your parents. Totally. Sorry, Sally Field. We didn't like her. We really didn't like her, to, to paraphrase her Oscar speech. <laughs> <laughs> my, 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 fallback, my fallback was, and flying none of us chose her. Ooh, no. that's oh, like a really, that's a really yes, deep, deep yes. cut there. Deep cut. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> Full circle. I was looking up E.W. Swackhammer, and it turns out he directed episodes of The Flying Nun. Oh, there you go. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. This is a wild fusion of universes (laughs) happening here. You guys, if we're not careful, we're going to start ripping open multiverses. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Neither Doctor Strange nor Ned are here to help us. (laughs) As long as we can bring Marissa Tomei's Aunt May through from another universe. Oh, that's a good point. (laughs) So let's talk about soundtracks. I'm a big soundtrack person. I think music really does a lot to either make or break a lot of things that happen in movies. Did you guys have a favorite soundtrack? Yes, I'll go. I have a favorite score and soundtrack because it's one of the, not all of these movies have both and it's Into the Spider-Verse. Yes. I, I love Perfect. that soundtrack. I could listen to that endlessly. I think it gets the exact right tone. And then I think the score is very different sounding from the soundtrack. It's it's not just recapitulating that same sound. It, it's something else, but it fits really well. It's well paced. It has good action scenes. It it has a good intensity. So I love the score and soundtrack for Spider Verse. I'm gonna nice. not go with Post Malone, but go with Joey Ramone, and I'm gonna mm. say. Oh. Spider-Man Homecoming, I love that they included the Ramones on the soundtrack because the Ramones, like Peter, are from Queens. They were these big nerds. And I always, when I think of Spider-Man, I think of the classic Spider-Man theme song, which the Ramones performed. And it is two minutes of pure perfection. (laughs) Yeah, so I really like the end of the Spider-Verse soundtrack, but the one that I actually owned on CD was from the 2002 film. And I don't remember all the tracks, but there was some 41 original <laughs> song, which I mean, what a time capsule of 2002 is some 41. They, so they recorded, I think it's called what we're all about. And they recorded it for the album. And it's very much some 41 channeling the beastie boys. And it was a lot of fun. <laughs> oh my goodness. And I was, I know I asked this question, but I was really going back and forth. I really enjoy what they did with the soundtracks 
for all of the most recent films, for the Tom Holland films. I did particularly like the way that the music for No Way Home blended in with the action. And there are so many times where I feel like, again, music can make or break the action of what's happening. And it can either enhance what's going on the screen or take you out of the action of the screen. And I feel like there's a really fine line to that that I think that the most recent films have done a really good job with of both building the suspense of scenes and building up the action, but also building up the emotional moments. There were quite a few really emotional moments in No Way Home, and I felt like they did a really good job of carrying us through those moments through the music as well, Mm -hmm. and then hitting a power move with the music like when those moments happened. So that was... That's probably my favorite right now, but I'm pretty waffly. I love music. And so I probably, once I listen to another movie, would be like, oh, maybe that one actually. But I just watched (laughs) No Way Home last night again. (laughs) So let's talk about No Way Home. That's a look at me giving myself a good segue. Pat him back. (laughs) So one of the reasons I wanted to do an episode about Spider-Man was so that we could discuss this film, which I thought was pretty phenomenal in a lot of ways. Mike, do you want to give us a quick overview of the film, including spoilers? Yeah, there's. it's not a movie that you can sum up with two sentences, so I'll try to do it <laughs> as briefly as I can. But this movie basically starts right where Spider-Man Far From Home left off. Spider-Man's secret identity has been revealed to the world thanks to Mysterio and J. Jonah Jameson, played by J.K. Simmons, who is channeling some serious Alex Jones vibes. Spidey is legally cleared of murdering Mysterio. Thank you, Matt Murdock cameo. And then the problem is that his secret identity puts his friends and family at risk. So he goes to Doctor Strange, who agrees to cast a spell that'll erase knowledge of Peter's identity from the public. But then the spell goes awry when Peter interferes because he keeps on thinking of people who should know his identity. And as a result, villains from across the multiverse, which we were teased with and far from home, but then actually got to see the formation of in the TV show Loki start arriving in the MCU Earth 616. And so we get the Green Goblin, we get Dr. Octopus, Electro, Sandman, and the Lizard who all show up and start wreaking havoc. Peter and his friends are basically charged by Dr. Strange to gather up these 'er ne'er-do-wells, and then they ultimately... They do, but then Peter learns that basically all of these guys die fighting their Peter Parkers, and so he commits to curing them of both their powers and their insanity, which Strange is not on board with, and then Strange just wants to send them home to their universes to meet their fates, but he and Peter wind up fighting in the mirror dimension, and Peter strands him there in the mirror dimension via the power of math, which I thought was great, and then (laughs) because these villains are villains, things go awry, Aunt May is actually fridged by Norman Osborn, but she manages to impart the great power, great responsibility lesson before she dies. And then we get the biggest twist of the movie, which was like actually the worst kept secret on the internet for a year, (laughs) which was Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire showing up. And then we get the movie that everyone wanted. It's the Spider-Man movie with something for everyone. Like the Spider-Men's basically perform group therapy and work together to come up with cures for the respective villains. There's an eventual showdown at the Statue of Liberty where Doc Ock shows up in one of the greatest heel face turns ever, and he winds up saving the day and turning the tide. The final battle is between Tom Holland and Willem Dafoe, who is back as the Green Goblin, but Tom stops short of killing him and winds up curing him rather than giving in to his rage. And finally, Strange 
is able to return everyone to the multiverse, but he has to wipe awareness of Peter from the entire world in order to protect the multiverse because suddenly everybody that knows Peter's secret identity is coming through. I'm not entirely sure how the rules of magic work, but it sounds like he wiped out awareness of Peter Parker's identity throughout the multiverse, but I don't quite know. Like The rules of magic seemed extra flimsy throughout Mm -hmm. the flick, to be honest. But the spell works, and then we see Peter's friends forget him and they're actually doing better without them being aware of his identity so he ultimately decides against revealing himself and then he's got that sort of batman moment where he's standing at may's grave and is inspired to continue being spider-man and the final scene is him running a shitty apartment and then he is hand sewed a spider-man costume together for himself and he's swinging over new york in this homemade costume and then we get a mid credit scene that I actually really liked, which was Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock Venom, who had been ported over to the 616 universe in his own post credit scene in Let There Be Carnage. He is drinking at a bar, and then he gets returned to his Earth, but leaves behind a small piece of the symbiote and not paying his bar tab. <laughs> I think I hit all the big moments, but like yeah, I rewatched totally. this movie last night, and I was like, Good Lord, there is so much happening here. So much happening. I know I actually watched it last night again for the same reason that I was like, I really feel like I I need to get a good grasp on this again before we have a more (laughs) broad conversation about this. So what did you all think about the film and what was your favorite part or overall funniest moment? However you want to swing that. (laughs) (laughs) Cute. <laughs> Rob, what about you first this time? Sure. Yeah, I think Guido should go last on this one because I think he's going to be an outlier in this part of this conversation. Oh, sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, I, I I enjoyed the movie. I really loved Homecoming and I really loved Far From Home. So I think compared to those movies, this was a step down for me. But I do think it ticked a lot of the boxes that I've liked from these Sony Marvel films. What I think I liked the most about it is actually when it moved away from plots and moved when it moved away from the multiversity and the magic, which, as we just said, might be a little flimsy and really focused on character connections. Really, the two different trios that Peter, Tom Holland, Peter is a part of his trio with Ned and MJ, where they have great chemistry all three films and they get a lot of that those moments here especially the moments really before the plot kicks in in that first kind of quarter of the film and then of course once we get the two other peters that chemistry that tom holland has with andrew garfield and toby Maguire, and where they're just allowed to vamp a little bit and talk about some of their stuff so i think tom holland is so great when he's in those kind of moments and when the movie focuses a little bit more on plot and the intricacies of things it starts to fall apart a bit for me but mike and jessica what about yourselves mike why don't you go ahead all right i have mixed feelings on the movie because i'm i'm in the same camp of there were some very broad or there were some big plot beats that i had issues with but there were a number of really lovely moments it's a little hard for me to narrow down to just one But I think it's the moments where you see all three Peters working together and they're like geeking out about how they're different and similar in various ways. 
like the bit where they first all see that Toby Maguire's Peter Parker like organically generates his webs and they're totally surprised and weirded out by it and they're asking about it and there's the moment where Toby Maguire's like are you guys making fun of me I feel like you're making fun of me and Tom Holland says that he's like no we just we can't do that and so we're just really curious about how it works and there's also the moment where Tom Holland's like all right so what's the craziest villain you've ever fought I liked those smaller moments between them. I think that's where the movie really shines. And I also have to say that the chemistry between all three of those actors was just really phenomenal. And I didn't notice it until I was rewatching it last night. But there's a moment where Ned calls out Peter's name in the lab and they all point at each other. And it turns out it's repeating that classic meme pose of Spider-Man pointing at each other, with, yeah. which I thought was great. I didn't notice that. the first I time noticed I that too. <laughs> I didn't either. The second time, though, when I watched it last night. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go next. I Overall, I really enjoyed this movie on the whole. I liked that it drew together everything that we as an audience have collectively experienced throughout all of these films and put a nice bow on it for us to enjoy. And part of it was that scene where they all point to each other and it's, oh my gosh, that's hilarious. We were able to enjoy all of the characters that we love, but it wasn't imperative to have seen all of the prior films to enjoy it because they did a really nice job of giving background information on each of the Peters and some of their struggles that you might come across. And it was also so touching and emotional. And I swear, I cry. I think I've actually, I've seen it more than two times. I think I lied before. I think I've seen it like four times now. But I, I cry during the same three parts every time I watch it. <laughs> and you would think that would change, but I don't think it's going to change through even the 50th watch. <laughs> I did not like the fridging, obviously. And I think to all of your guys' point, it's the plot sometimes is okay, but why? Especially some of the Doctor Strange stuff. It's, oh, I don't know. He seems like it. they took him too far in some of the aspects of his personality that kind of led to the overall plot but i think without that you wouldn't have had some of the plot points that they had to hit so i think they were like oh how are we gonna shoehorn and used him for that kind of plot narrative what are your three crying moments or is that private oh not at all yeah no i will absolutely share that so i definitely started crying when aunt may died obviously when andrew garfield catches zendaya and He's like, are you okay? And she's like, are you okay? Yeah, that was great. I'm like crying thinking about it. <laughs> Apparently I need a moment. What? That, that scene, that one's like the big ticket item, obviously, as I'm still like thinking about it. But I'm a very emotional movie watcher. And I like, I live through the emotions of the characters. Like I just, I'm a very empathetic individual. And so if I'm watching something and there's emotion, like I'm probably going to be crying. I cry during the commercials, those stupid, like, arms of the angels like dogs <laughs> one-eyed dogs sad commercials i'm like tears running down my face i'm like i gotta change the channel this is why i don't have cable anymore and then my other moment is just at the end when peter's no longer going to be recognized by anyone and he's like having the moment with mj and i'm just like oh <laughs> so those are my three it's funny that you mentioned the moment that Andrew Garfield saves MJ because in the Mexican Spider-Man comics, if I remember right, basically they were so upset about Gwen Stacy dying that they basically just, they had it so that she didn't die when she was thrown off the bridge. And as a result, there's this whole oh. run of Mexican comics where Gwen Stacy and Peter Parker just kept going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. 
Because, yeah, that was really sad. I was like, this seems unnecessary. And again, fridging. Am I right? All right. Now we've saved the best for last here, Guido. No, I know. Rob, I should not have been last, but I don't like (laughs) critiquing things that people love because I just prefer to put out love and joy and excitement for things. But I really don't like this movie a lot. It's it does not crack my top half of my MCU. And it's not just disappointment as a fan. I think there's a lot just to like briefly get out of the way. My overall issue that makes me think like one day I think this movie is going to be reapprised a bit. And this that's not me saying you guys like won't love it forever. But I think it was pure just fan service. And I think my sense is it was really a business deal with Sony. It was really for Sony to let Marvel keep making Spider-Man movies. They said, fine, but you have to legitimize our universe. And it felt Mm -hmm. that way with the lack of rules, with the really forced introduction, definitely with the pre release marketing, the leaks, everything, the whole thing felt like it was really just an attempt to create the possibility of sequels to create excitement for Sony's universe, even though the Tom Holland Spider-Man won't show up in it. And yeah, it felt to me like there was a planned trilogy that John Watts probably had in mind. And because there's threads from the early movies that don't get picked up. And so it felt like this movie sort of the second half of this movie was like a studio imposition. So that's out of the way. What did I love about it? I loved the first 30, 35 minutes with the three characters we've grown to know. So I loved MJ, Ned and Peter in that first half hour or so when they're on their missions and moving through what they need to do. And even when they encounter Doctor Strange, even though I agree with you, Jessica, Doctor Strange is not quite the Doctor Strange we know, which to me again feels like there was a direction it was supposed to go and then it didn't go in that way. But I still love all that stuff with those three characters because their chemistry is Mm -hmm. so good. Okay, wait, I just want to throw in another favorite moment because I love that Ned is magic. I love that he is magic. I agree. (laughs) But he's not anymore. Ned finally gets a comeuppance. Because after they, because after, like after everybody forgot about him, then that kind of, I think, removed that from him. It's a good question. Well, but here's, it's a good question. I don't see why it would remove it from him. It probably removes the knowledge. But he could encounter it again a different way and become. Yeah. Yeah. It almost feels if you've been uh, under hypnosis and then you're brought out Mm -hmm. of hypnosis, but then years later, someone says something that is your hypnosis trigger word and then then that brings you back. And I could see something like that happening. Yeah. And I hope we get that. Really start winking. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, so that was just my other one. I loved when the the cape flew onto his shoulders. <laughs> yeah. Is there anyone you missed seeing in this film from the general Spider-Verse at large? They gave us Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock, which was, that was great. I was really happy to see that. And especially because they've also brought the Kingpin back in Hawkeye. Mm -hmm. But I was really hoping that we would get another kind of like street level hero from the Netflix shows. Like, I don't give a shit about Danny Rand or the Punisher. Keep them out of the cinematic universe. But I would have really liked to see Jessica Jones and Luke Cage get their own small moments, too. That would have been great. Did you see they Mike Coulter and Kristen Ritter on Instagram the other day? Oh, my God. Yeah, that was great. (laughs) They've announced that they're bringing back like just this week. I think they just announced that they're bringing back a Daredevil show. Mm -hmm. in the mcu like i'm happy to see those kind of get a a a better integration in the mcu 
<laughs> but yeah, I don't know. What about you guys? What what did who are you missing in this? I have no information about this character because I've actually never read the Spider Verse comics. Believe it or not, I'm waiting for the omnibus in print to read them. But I would have it liked Spider Gwen to show up, and some of that is mm. because for lack of a better word, this movie is quite a sausage fest. And <laughs> yeah. it would have just been fun to have someone who wasn't a man kicking around as a hero. And Spider-Gwen from the Spider-Verse movies is mm -hmm. real fun. Again, even though I really know nothing about the universe she comes from, but I just think that would have been really fun to see live action and, and thrown in there. Yeah. Have her run into uh, Haley Steinfeld playing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> for, for me, it's less a person. And I think it is about the multiverse as a whole. And our podcast, Dear Watchers, deals a lot with the multiverse. And I think, as we've frequently said in our assessment of No Way Home, it, it goes into it, but not as far as I had hoped. And I think... Mike, you had mentioned in your summary, Mysterio actually mentions the multiverse in Far From Home, but that's not ever tied into this new movie. And it's also, of course, brought up in Loki, and it's going to be brought up in Multiverse of Madness, which, well, which is already out, but it comes after this movie. But those things have not quite, it was, ne it was never seen fully integrated, which might go back to Guido's point that some of this might have been a little bit of a business deal and not everybody was talking to one another and fully integrating this. So I would have loved to have seen that a little bit more fleshed out in this movie. Yeah, I can see that. Absolutely. I'm going to have to agree with Guido this time around that there was well, it was a huge fucking sausage fest. <laughs> and hi, we were bringing back what characters who knew Peter Parker. Am I wrong that Kirsten Dunst motherfucking knows who Peter Parker is? Yeah. Like, why couldn't we had all these other characters who had died? Why didn't Gwen get to come back other than being like the continually fringed <laughs> character, like no. where he has to have this emotional moment, which I'm sure that's the reason they didn't bring her back. But they probably also were like, then we can't bring back Mary Jane. Or also they could have brought in Dane DeHaan as the other Green Goblin, which I'm glad they didn't because it was dreadful. But I forgot about that. Yeah. Probably for the best. <laughs> I was watching that video for the first time and I was like, this is such garbage character design and uh, <laughs> whatever. We also never had a female villain show up, which I yeah. know he doesn't have too many, but they could have found somebody. Again, Catherine Hahn. Come mm -hmm. on. Just right there. Yeah, hi. Hello. <laughs> exactly. Wouldn't that have been funny if they had put in one animated character? <laughs> yeah. When they start showing all the people coming through from the multiverse and they're just all like figures that are composed of motes of light. And I was trying to identify anybody that I could, and I couldn't figure out who was who. And that's where some of the logic starts to fall apart, too, because if the logic is that only people who know who Peter Parker is are going to be crossing over, then are all those other people coming in also know who Peter Parker is? So I think some of that felt, okay, we have to have something happen here at the end. There has to be some yeah. big, you know, yeah. MacGuffin that has to occur, but it doesn't fully make sense. And how does that affect all of the other Peter Parkers? Because that's never established either. It's like, it, yeah, it takes care of this one, but you already created a spell that has crossed multiverses. 
there has to that this spell arguably for going by logic again that's my bad if we're trying to throw logic into it that you would think that it would affect all of the other peters like mm-hmm. every other peter peter b parker it, it would affect all of the peters including the two peter parkers that we got to see in the movie am yeah. i wrong to assume no, that would yeah. be the way it would go down but yeah i don't know yeah totally open-ended question no wrong answers. I've spoken a little bit about it already, but how do you feel about the Doctor Strange Spider-Man dynamic? Eh. <laughs> like, eh. Yeah. Underdeveloped. The first time I watched it, I was like, yeah, this is fine. I didn't complain about it. But on rewatches, it feels a little forced. And also, it's weird how Strange is a dick, and he doesn't seem to be willing to acknowledge that this is just a kid who is trying to make things better. He like acknowledges it, but then doesn't acknowledge like all of it. Yeah. He's you're a kid, so you're doing stupid shit to get in my way. But he doesn't acknowledge the other piece of being a kid. <laughs> mm. Mm. It also doesn't make sense in terms of Doctor Strange's arc in the MCU because it exists between Endgame and Multiverse of Madness, and the depiction in well, No Way Home. Like, I don't. It's not bridged. That's where I think like there was something that they didn't continue with or develop or something that got cut out or something about that relationship was supposed to be meaningful. I feel like in Dr. Strange's arc and doesn't end up amounting to much of anything. I, I would argue that it softened him for the next character he was going to deal with in multiverse of madness and that he didn't have the same approach to dealing with somebody who maybe is younger and inexperienced as he might have done prior to dealing with Peter Parker, regardless of whether or not he remembers who Peter Parker is. He still had that emotional experience and kind mm-hmm. of, we were supposed mm-hmm. to believe, have that 180 arc of mm. you're a, I think it was, I think it was heavy handed. I think the whole thing was super heavy handed. Like it, you didn't have to make it so dramatic to where he's this big of a dick. <laughs> to the point where he's like this big of a softy. Like, I feel like there could have been a middle ground at both of those two points, but I do feel like that it, it eased him into how he would deal with the upcoming characters in the next movie. I like that idea. I yeah, have not thought too. about that. I want to watch now like Endgame, No Way Home and Multiverse of Madness looking for that arc. Mm-hmm. I like that idea. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think I'm going to go rewatch Multiverse of Madness because I did see it last week, but I, th- I think I'm going to go rewatch it just on my own. Rob, you haven't said anything about this yet. <laughs> well, Weigh I, in, I, please weigh in. <laughs> I think one criticism of the Sam Raimi movies is that they all tell the exact same story over and over again and they, they hit on the same beats. And I think you could say a similar thing about Peter's relationship with Tony Stark in Homecoming and then Peter's relationship with Doctor Strange. And there's lots of people have said that there's lot many similarities from facial hair to arrogance about Tony Stark and Stephen Strange. So it, it did seem a little bit like they wanted to get that same dynamic magnetism that Tom Holland and Robert Downey Jr. had in Homecoming. And it wasn't quite there here. And maybe that's because those two actors had more time spending together back going back to civil war who knows but it did feel like it wasn't 100% there but it seemed a, a pale imitation of that previous relationship yeah i can see that especially if you consider the retconning of peter parker having been saved by him so many years prior mm-hmm. so they do really they do have that established relationship going back if you do 
consider that piece of it. And that's exactly. almost something they explored in actual detail with the Hawkeye series, with Hawkeye and Kate Bishop having this dynamic where Hawkeye saved her years earlier and now they've developed this relationship. Yeah. And it's a very similar relationship of this buddy comedy. But I think on the Hawkeye series, it worked exceptionally well. But and this not Agreed. so much. Just because I until I was doing the research, I didn't even know that was supposed to be the jam. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that that he was supposed to have been that kid going back. And I remember that moment. But I don't know where it was called out that was supposed to be the situation because I don't recall that. But apparently it is. And any final thoughts on the film No Way Home before we put a web on this and wrap it up? <laughs> I can't wait to see where any of those characters go next. I love the speculation that if Shuri is at MIT, that Ned and MJ could be at MIT with her. And it would be really fun to meet Ned and MJ without knowing who Peter is for a while and, and let them do something before they find out again, which they will inevitably. I'm excited about what's next, always. And speaking of what's next, too, I, I know... I've seen some things with Tom Holland saying he's maybe done with the character. Other people saying he's definitely not. Guido thinks he's 100% going to do it again. But I do think... No, he's going to come back. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Here's the thing. They will write him a he's check got at with least so many zeros. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I do think if he decided to not come back, the ending that they gave the movie kind of makes it that it could be this blank slate and almost in the fact that if Zendaya was still in the movie and other actors and you then had a different actor almost the conceit that they've forgotten who Peter Parker is almost invites having a new actor mm -hmm. play the role so I think they opened themselves mm -hmm. up a little bit there that they gave themselves that wiggle room and maybe they even created that before they got into contract talks with Tom Holland. Who knows? But I thought like it did have that open endedness that I enjoyed. It did feel like this was the end of a trilogy, whether it was the end of that John Watts wanted or it was an end that was maybe prescribed to him. It did seem like an yeah. end. Yeah, it did feel very complete. Yeah. And like the, the nice thing about each of the Spider-Man movies is that for the most part, they felt like very self-contained stories. Far From Home has that climactic ending where it shows his identity getting revealed. But if they hadn't done that, it would have been fine. And I was like, they're obviously going to make another movie. And I'm like, and that's a great note to end on because it's not continuing the central conflict. It's introducing this new one. And I liked it a lot. And it was also just, <laughs> it was very funny. I love J. Jonah Jameson, like basically just running the Marvel equivalent of InfoWars. I thought that was just <laughs> chef's kiss. It was yes. so good. Yeah. I did like that. All the different yeah, advertisements he was doing of like supplements and shit. Oh, so funny. So love funny. That and so much. And like originally he's just like in this shitty little like room in his apartment and then he blows right. up after that. No, overall, I really enjoyed the movie, but I think that's more because all of the recent Spider-Man movies feel really special because they've got these really strong memories associated with the family that I've built over the past few years. Like one of the first movies Sarah and I watched was homecoming after we canceled our day plans due to a rainstorm. And so that was like just one of our first lazy days together. And then since then every Spider-Man movie that's come out, my stepson and I have gone to the theater and seen it except for this one, obviously, but we did just upgrade our TV and speaker system. And so that was the movie that we christened the new setup with. So like, I have really 
good memories associated with each one of these movies, which makes me look on them a little bit more favorably than others might. I'm more than happy to acknowledge the flaws of this movie, but at the same time, I, I still really like it. Yeah, my closing thoughts are just like, I enjoyed it, but same thing. It definitely had some flaws, but I'm such a sucker for these movies. It does feel really <laughs> pandery sometimes, you know what I mean? Doctor Strange felt a little pandery as well, but... Sometimes you just want a hamburger. You don't need filet mignon. This is very true. I'm not above a hamburger. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I am totally that guy who every now and then has Panda Express delivered because I'm just craving that garbage orange chicken. <laughs> you don't always want to consume the best stuff. You just want to consume stuff that you like. <laughs> totally fair. Yeah. Let's go ahead then, in that case, and move on to our brain wrinkles. All right, so we're moving on to our brain wrinkles, which is that one thing comics or comics adjacent that you've had rolling around in the crevices of your cranium. Let's go ahead and start with Guido. What you got for us? I'm thinking about, I think it's the same thing I said last time I was on, but my wrinkle keeps, I don't know, deepening, expanding, whatever it is, which is really just the role multiversal storytelling is playing in our society right now because it's so big. It's even from us talking a few months ago and this being, I think, the wrinkle I was thinking about, there's more and more properties that are doing this. And on our episodes of Dear Watchers, when we've interviewed creators, we always ask them why they think it is. And there's been really neat theories about creators who were writing fan fiction, who started to take the reins or the diversity of perspectives being a way that multiverses work because then you can hold on to the primary canon people know, but start introducing alternate versions that meet different people's needs or represent different perspectives. I just really am so interested in why as a society, like we're reaching this point in the zeitgeist. Comics are doing it left and right and have been for a long time, but it definitely feels nonstop now. Even Marvel, who was a little protective of, I'd say, their multiverse more than DC was, has Jason Aaron writing Avengers Forever, and there's just all these multiversal stories showing up everywhere. And I always think about that, and I think it's fun to think about and interesting to think about what role it's playing for all of us in society and why now. Yeah, that's a cool concept to chew on. Thanks. Rob, what about you? My brain wrinkle is a character I would love to see come back into movies. And he's not an actual comic book character, but he might as well be. And that is a character created by the director of the original Spider-Man series, Darkman. And we rewatched oh, yeah. the first Darkman movie just before we watched a few weeks before we saw multiverse of madness and is directed by Sam Raimi and starring Liam Neeson as the title character. And it's just a great comic book movie that is not based on a comic book. It looks like a comic book. It's got a Danny Elfman score like multiverse of madness and the original Spider-Man movies that just sounds very comic book. And the character went away. He had two sequels it just never came back. And of course, on the heels of the new Multiverse of Madness movie making so much money and doing so well, of course, now there is talk of maybe a Darkman movie coming back. Liam Neeson has expressed interest to return to the character as well. So I would love to see that character back 
in films or in the comic book world or TV world, really anywhere, because it's a great, fun, dark, noiry character. Marvel did like a miniseries back mm-hmm. in the 90s, I yeah. think, with, and Kurt Busiek wrote it, I think. But like, of course, Liam Neeson wants to come back. I think he's desperate for acting jobs at this point because he got canceled a couple of years ago when he was giving an interview and then he talked about how he went out looking for people of color to beat up after some sensationalized news story in his hometown or something like that. And so I don't think he's really been doing much since then. Cause Jesus everyone was like, Christ. like it was yeah. one of those things where no one mentioned it. And then he just had this whole monologue where he's sitting there telling a reporter the story. <laughs> and I'm like, I can just in real time, see his agent just being like, how do I get myself out of this? shit?" Show? Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and, and I definitely don't think he's, he wouldn't be, required for me to bring the character back and one of the great things about dark man is he can look like anybody that's part of the whole concept of him so it would be great it doesn't have to be 70 year old liam neeson it can be a younger actor now playing this part and rebooting the whole franchise but i would love sam raimi to be involved in some way and danny elfman as well and some of the other original creatives but hopefully it will come back somewhere maybe in uh tv form or comic form yeah. The other thing is that character was like basically what happened when Raimi couldn't get the rights to the shadow. Mm-hmm. I remember. And what if Sam Raimi got the rights to the shadow? Like, just <laughs> bear with me on that. Like, yeah. how cool would that be? <laughs> we just talked with David Avalone on our podcast and did a great interview with him who's written the shadow comics. And I would love to see in mm-hmm. general some of those pulp characters bring back the shadow, bring back the Lee Falk phantom bring back Mm -hmm. dick tracy i think a lot of those characters are due for a a revamp and some of them there's some questionable things that you might have to smooth out for the 2020s but i think i would love to still see Mm -hmm. those characters revamped in some way because i think if we don't bring them back there is a risk that they are going to die out and fade away because the people that remember them are getting older and they really aren't existing in our pop culture the way they used to be and i do think there is room to have them in our world even if that even if they have to change a little bit yeah yeah absolutely well my brain wrinkle is about dr strange no spoilers (laughs) but it's it was a good movie. I'm not going to I'm not going to go too deep into it. Go see it if you are into the Marvel universe. But I did want to mention just I think you know you had said earlier about the pandering. So I agree and that's how Doctor Strange definitely felt to me with some of the I felt like they were trying to throw around too many things that the fans would enjoy just as call-outs without necessarily connecting accurately to that call-out. <laughs> that's my only thing i really want to say without as as vague as i can be without giving any anything away (laughs) because it's so new it's so new but yeah i thought it was an an interesting watch regardless and the visuals were super fucking sick so that i will give it i'm very excited to watch it on the couch with my dog when it's streaming (laughs) i will also do that again but it was a good this is the first movie I have seen in a theater. I just realized, actually, my my really good friend Matt took me to see it. And I haven't seen anything in a theater since the pandemic. So it's been a couple of years and it was an experience. So, yeah. Yeah. Mike, what about you? <laughs> I have been watching a lot of Young Justice with my stepson recently. And then I was thinking about all the stuff that's getting pulled into the cinematic universe. And it's really 
interesting to stop and consider how all of these different properties have gotten so big and so expansive to the point where they have canon mythologies now that are just as broad and complicated as their comic book counterparts. And I don't think anybody really expected that to happen, what, 14 years ago when Iron Man really started everything? <laughs> but it's just, it's fascinating. My stepson and I, we're, we're watching Young Justice and the Outsiders, the latest season on HBO Max, and we're sitting there watching this bit with Aquaman, and it's got the council of the different kingdoms under the sea. And one of the one of the council members is Lori Lamaris, who is the mermaid girlfriend from Silver Age Superman. And so I was like, oh, that's really funny. And then I was explaining it to him. And then we had another one where Etrigan the demon shows up. And so he was asking me all these questions about Etrigan and very curious about who he was. And it's cool that all of a sudden these really complicated media mythologies are starting to become very mainstream. And also it goes back to the whole thing about comic book nerds are the cool kids now. It's cool that they're putting them out in such a different way of digesting them. Because again, not everybody's going to be a comic book reader, but you can capture a lot more people with film and, and TV shows. So to yeah. expand out is seems like not a bad mm -hmm. idea generally. And I think if yeah. the more you expand to the more it also opens the doors for bringing in diversity as well, because if you want to maybe stay true to, you know, the original race or gender of the original character for whatever reason i see some logic to that but like now that you can bring in a greater cast around that and new people it allows for so much more representation that you can ultimately have in your film or tv or comics or whatever yeah great thanks folks for joining us on this very spider adventure today <laughs> We will be back in two weeks with another rousing episode of Tencent Takes. But for now, we'll see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier, Mike Thompson, Rob Rebar, and Guido Sanchez. Written by Jessica Frazier and edited by Mike Thompson. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan MacDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank at lookmomdraws.com. You can find us, Dear Watchers, at Dear Watchers on Twitter. And DearWatchers.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to TencentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is TencentTakes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica has a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there support your local comic shop 